There he declared, Brethren, I say unto you freely of the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us unto this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins he would set up one upon his throne, he foreseeing this, the events on the day of Pentecost when about three thousand were converted, spake of the resurrection of the Christ, that neither was he left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus did God raise up, whereof we all are witnesses. Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this, which ye see and hear. For David ascended not into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Then Peter adds, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. Acts 2 verses 29-36 Here Peter recalls the great promise made to David that his son would sit on his throne. And as fulfillment of that promise, Peter points to Christ's resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of God, the position of power and influence from which position and in the exercise of his kingship he has poured forth this Pentecostal blessing. David did not himself ascend into the heavens, but he predicted that God the Father would make his greater son, here also acknowledged as his Lord, the ruler in the kingdom, until all his enemies have been made the footstool of his feet. What we now see in the effective forward moving of the church, says Peter, is the proof that the promise has been fulfilled, that Christ is now on David's throne, directing the affairs of his kingdom. The promise as originally given to David is found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 15, and contains the assurance that the throne of his kingdom shall be established forever. Another great promise concerning the tabernacle of David is found in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, and reads as follows, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up its ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that are called by my name, saith Jehovah, that doeth this. And in Acts 15 this prophecy is quoted by James and interpreted as having its fulfillment in the great missionary expansion of the New Testament era, that is, during the church age, in which the Gentiles are being brought into the church on an equality with the Jews, without being required to submit to the Jewish rituals and ceremonies. And this ongoing of the work of the church, this extension of the kingdom of God, is to continue until the remote parts of the earth, here described as the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name, are brought under his rule. That the kingdom is a present reality, that it therefore has not been postponed, is taught in a number of scripture passages. In the song offered to the Lamb, recorded in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, we read, Worthy art thou to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and didst purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, and madest them to be unto our God a kingdom, and priests, and they reign upon the earth. 
Christ himself said, The kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17.21. The Apostle Paul throughout his ministry preached this message of the presently existing kingdom, and at the very close of his ministry, when he was a prisoner in Rome, he still was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 28.31. John's message to the first century Christians and he made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion for ever and ever. Revelation 1.6 proves beyond doubt that the kingdom is in the world. Nothing has been postponed. The kingdom is here and we are in it, says John. What a striking contrast there is between the dispensational idea of the kingdom on the one hand, with Christ as an earthly king, once rejected, but yet to set up his throne in the city of Jerusalem. And on the other, the scriptural idea that Christ did establish his kingdom as planned, that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men, the church being the outward and visible manifestation of that kingdom during this age, as the nation of Israel was in Old Testament times, that Christ is now ruling from his throne in heaven, directing the program of his advancing kingdom, and that he is to go on conquering and to conquer, until the whole world has been brought into subjection to him. Chapter 7, page 229, the parenthesis, Church Theory. In its doctrine of the Church, dispensationalism holds that the Jewish rejection of the kingdom caused Jesus to postpone the kingdom until the second advent and to establish the Church as an interlude between the two advents, and that the Church was in no sense a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises, but something entirely new and revealed for the first time to the Apostle Paul. According to that view, Judaism remains intact as one of the true and acceptable forms of worshiping God, runs a predicted course, and does not give way before nor merge into the New Testament church as held by post and amillennialists. Commenting on the dispensational idea that the church was substituted for the kingdom and writing in criticism of that view, Dr. Hendrickson says, There are those who maintain that the church is a mere parenthesis, an afterthought in God's program of redemption, a valley invisible to Old Testament prophets who never even dreamed about it, that in dealing with the church, history has left the main highway and is making a detour, and that God ignores the flight of time until he deals again with the Jews. In the sight of God, so runs the argument, the Jews are all important. Hebrew time is the Lord's time. Israel is like a scheduled train, which has been put on the side track temporarily, but will be put back on the main track again, as soon as the unscheduled Gentile special has passed through. A quote from the booklet, And so all Israel shall be saved. Page 7. The dispensational view holds that the church age will come to an end in the rapture, which, it is alleged, is the first stage of the second advent, the miraculous, silent, secret removal of all true believers to meet the Lord in the air. Seven years after the rapture there occurs the revelation, which is the public, visible return of Christ and his people to the earth. Thus the key point of the dispensational system may be said to be the mystery parenthesis doctrine of the church, which is that the Christian church is a stopgap between two phases of an earthly Jewish kingdom, one past and the other future. 
The particular feature of this system that we now wish to examine is that which holds that the church is only an interlude, a parenthesis in history, as it has been called, and that it is to remain eternally separate from that kingdom. The key text on which this view of the church is based is Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 7. How that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God which was given me according to the working of his power. But while this is the primary passage relied on by dispensationalists to prove their doctrine of the church, a careful reading will show that the mystery is not the church, not even a Gentile church, but the fact that in the church the Gentiles are to enjoy and actually do enjoy a status of complete and absolute equality with the Jews. They belong to the same body and they have the same access to God through prayer and the atonement purchased by Christ as do the Jews. The mystery that Paul speaks of was not completely unknown in Old Testament times but was not as well known as it is now. It was not unknown to Abraham for the promise first given to him was that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12.3 Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God declared his reason for having chosen Israel. I will give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Chapter 49, verse 6 Speaking through the prophet Joel, he said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Jehovah shall be delivered. Chapter 2, verses 28 and 32. Various other prophets wrote to the same effect. Thus, future blessing to the Gentiles and even equality between Jew and Gentile was predicted in the Old Testament, but it was not revealed so clearly as in the New Testament. Nor was the revelation that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews a revelation to Paul only, nor even given first to Paul. Peter had already been sent to preach to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, and in the Jerusalem council he rose up and said, Brethren, ye know that a good while ago God made choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knoweth the heart, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did unto us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Acts 15, verses 7 through 9. Notice that he does not say a word about Paul, nor about any special revelation having been made to Paul, but appeals instead to his own experience, which for him had been almost as revolutionary as Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. And Paul, making his defense before King Agrippa, said, Having therefore obtained the help that is from God, I stand unto this day testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses did say should come. Thus what he was preaching concerning the church was predicted in the Old Testament 
how that Christ must suffer and how that he first by the resurrection of the dead should proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Acts 26 verses 22 and 23 In regard to the word mystery and the meaning given to it by dispensationalists, Dr. Alice says, The word mystery occurs 29 times in the New Testament, most of which are in Paul's epistles, six being in Ephesians. It is important, therefore, to observe how the word is used, especially by Paul. Paul speaks of several mysteries, the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, Colossians 2.2, of Christ, Colossians 4.3, of the Gospel, Ephesians 6.19, of His will, Ephesians 1.9, of the faith, 1 Timothy 3.9, of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16, of iniquity, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. These passages show that to describe a person or subject as a mystery does not necessarily imply that he or it was entirely unknown. It might be known, yet still be a mystery because not fully known. God was known in Israel. That was Israel's preeminence. To know God was Israel's duty. Yet Paul speaks of the mystery of God. Christ was God manifest in the flesh. He had been on earth and the facts of his earthly life were known. Yet Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ. Especially noteworthy is 1 Timothy 3.16 where Paul speaks of the mystery of godliness and then refers to events in the earthly life of Christ which were known to and had been witnessed by Christians who were in Christ before him. Consequently, according to Paul, a mystery may be a truth which can only be understood by believers or a truth only partly known to them but not necessarily something entirely new or utterly unknown. Was the church a mystery in the latter sense? It is significant that Paul never uses the expression the mystery of the church. He does not tell us that the church is a mystery. What he is concerned to tell us is that something about the church is a mystery. This he states with great plainness and very emphatically. The mystery is that the Gentiles are to enjoy, actually do enjoy, a status of complete equality with the Jews in the Christian church. They are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word rendered fellow is the preposition with, with heirs, etc., which indicates close association or identification. They are co-heirs with the Jews. They belong to the same body. They share equally with the Jews in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the doctrine which Paul preached with great earnestness. See Romans 1.14, chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 10, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12.13, Galatians 3.28, and Ephesians 2.12 This important feature of the Christian church was the mystery, but it was not a mystery in the sense that no inkling of it had ever been given. For by insisting that the Abrahamic covenant included all who were of like faith with Abraham, Romans chapter 4, Paul had already made it clear that the rights of the Gentiles for which he was contending were theirs by virtue of the covenant. It was a mystery in the sense that, like other teachings which were spoken of as such, 
it was not fully revealed in the Old Testament and was completely hidden from the carnal mind. A doctrine which was so hated by Jews that they were ready to kill those who preached it, see Luke 4.16 and Acts 22.21, and which was unknown to Gentiles, might well be called a mystery. But we repeat, it was not the church itself, but this doctrine regarding the church, which was a mystery. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, pages 90-92. to And concerning the subject matter, Dr. Murray says, If the church remained a hidden mystery until its discovery by Paul, one feels like asking what Jesus Christ meant and what Peter would have understood by the phrase, Upon this rock I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18 It is not quite enough for us that the Schofield Reference Bible has in the preface to Ephesians 3 the church a mystery hidden from past ages. A quote from Schofield Reference Bible, page 1252. There ought to be something stronger and more conclusive than a Schofield footnote to convince people that the church which Peter knew and the church which Paul discovered were not the same. How alien to traditional Christianity is this dividing of the redeemed of the Lord into different entities known as body and bride, the bride and the friends of the bridegroom according to the period in which they lived, as though salvation were offered on different terms. This is not rightly dividing the word of truth, but wrongly dividing the church of God. It is putting asunder what God hath joined together. A quote from Millennial Studies, page 34. As regards the relationship of the Jews to the Gentiles, even a cursory reading of the Bible, either Old Testament or New, reveals that the Jews were chosen not merely for their own sake, but in order that they might be the divinely appointed means for bringing God's message of salvation to the entire world. But so completely did they misunderstand their mission that they generally did not realize that the Gentiles were to have any part in the divine purpose. They were reluctant even to think of the Gentiles as being of any concern at all to God. This has been well expressed by Dr. Alice. For centuries the Jews had looked upon themselves as, in a unique sense, the people of God, and nothing gave them more grievous offense than the teaching that sinners, unbelieving dogs of the Gentiles, were to share with them in the blessings of Messiah's kingdom, especially the idea that they would be in any sense their equals in it. But this was also, as we have seen, an old truth which was taught at least in germ in the Abrahamic covenant. The blessing of the nations is one of the prominent features in that covenant. All that was intended or involved in that blessing was not at once made clear. The law was given to Israel. The kingship was Davidic. The Messiah was to come of David's line. Yet in the Psalms and in the prophets, especially in Isaiah, we are given occasional glimpses of the worldwide scope of this promise to the fathers. A Jew must have had his eyes holden by Jewish prejudice who could not learn from Isaiah chapter 19 verses 23 through 25 that the future had wonderful things in store for the Gentiles, even for those nations at whose hand Israel had suffered the most. Yet there were other prophecies which seemed to declare with equal clearness that the preeminence of the Jews was to continue world without end. 
Consequently, the statements of the prophets might be regarded as ambiguous, and the carnally-minded Jews would naturally interpret them all in terms of their selfish, nationalistic desires and expectations. Clearly, the equality of Gentile with Jew was predicted in the Old Testament, but it was not there made known, as it hath now been revealed, to the apostles and prophets of the Lord. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 95. We hold, therefore, that the church in which the Gentiles play such an important part is no unforeseen interlude or parenthesis in history, but the true and lawful successor of Old Testament Israel. That Judaism served its divinely appointed purpose in preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the church. That having served that purpose, its mission was accomplished and it was abolished and should never have been revived. And that now... Jews and Gentiles in the church stand on absolutely the same plane with identically the same needs and rights and privileges. Just at this point many people stumble, for they assume that when we say that the Gentiles have the same rights and privileges as the Jews, we are taking something from the Jews that is their exclusive possession. The only thing taken from the Jews was their privilege as a nation of being God's representative in bringing his gospel to all the earth. That purpose came to an end and was abolished and originally was intended to be abolished with the coming of the Messiah and the accomplishment of his work of redemption. But we repeat that individually nothing has been taken away from the Jews that under the New Testament dispensation believing Jews retain all of the rights and privileges of access to God and blessing by him that they possessed in the Old Testament dispensation, and that, in point of fact, both Jews and Gentiles now enjoy much freer access and a much closer relationship with him than ever was possible through the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system. Even Dr. A.C. Gabeline, who defends the dispensational position, acknowledges that Christian Jews possess now something infinitely more glorious than the nation will possess when the Lord comes to restore his ancient people. A quote in Unsearchable Riches, page 30. Dispensationalists generally acknowledge that in the New Testament dispensation, the Jews stand on a plane of equality with the Gentiles. Yet with strange inconsistency, they teach that after Christ returns, there will be a restoration of Judaism with its rituals and ceremonies and the setting up again of the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. In reply to the charge that we are robbing Israel when we claim for the church the Old Testament promises and blessings that originally were spoken to Israel, Dr. Alice says, It is this dispensational attitude, we believe, that deserves to be characterized by the word robbery. It robs Israel of her true destiny and glory by excluding her from the church of God. By insisting that her heritage is earthly, it robs her of that better portion which is heavenly. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 280. Also in this connection, it is appropriate to point out that the Christian church was not originally a Gentile church, but a purely Jewish church. All of the early disciples were Jews. It began as a Jewish organization and so continued in the main for the first two or three decades. Then gradually Gentiles were admitted. 
It was not until after Peter's vision on the housetop and his mission to the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius that he realized that the Gentiles too were to be admitted on terms of equality with the Jews. We can almost hear the gasp of wonder as he said to Cornelius, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted to him. Acts 10.35 Paul and Barnabas also first preached primarily in the synagogues and to Jews, and it was not until after opposition arose to them that they turned to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, verses 45 and 46, we read, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with jealousy and contradicted the things which were spoken by Paul and blasphemed. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you, seeing ye thrust it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Chapter 8, page 237, The Church in Old Testament Prophecy Dispensationalism is insistent that the church was not foreseen by the Old Testament prophets. The reason it was not foreseen, they tell us, is because it was not in the original plan of God, but is an expedient to which Christ resorted when his plan to establish the kingdom was rejected. One of the clearest refutations of that view, however, is the fact that on the day of Pentecost, Peter, speaking to the great crowd in Jerusalem, explained the wonderful things that they were seeing. What they were seeing was the Christian church in its corporate witness by saying, But this is that which hath been spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he proceeded to quote, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour forth my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my servants and on my handmaidens in those days will I pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord come, that great and notable day. And it shall be that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2, verses 17 through 21 and Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. In Acts 3.24 we read that after the healing of the lame man at the door of the temple, Peter said, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and them that followed after, as many as have spoken, they also told of these days. To those in the new church, Peter wrote, Concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, Searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto you did they minister these things, which now have been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you. 1 Peter 1 verses 9 through 12. As a means of testing the truth or falsity of the dispensational doctrine regarding the church, 
The 15th chapter of Acts is one of the most important in the New Testament. This is because the Jerusalem Conference, which is reported there, dealt with the question which had arisen at Antioch regarding the status of Gentiles in the church, whether or not they were under obligation to keep the Mosaic law. It therefore concerned the nature of the church and the relation of Gentile and Jew in it. To settle the question, James quoted from the Old Testament prophet Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. In Acts 15, verses 13 through 18, we read, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath rehearsed how first God visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, for it is written, After these things I will return, and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men may seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who maketh these things known from of old. Here, in the first general assembly of the church at Jerusalem, James, speaking by inspiration, appeals directly to Old Testament prophecy as having predicted this influx of the Gentiles into the kingdom. The prophecy concerning the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David is interpreted as having its fulfillment in the rise and expansion of the New Testament church into all the nations. And on this basis he proceeds to give it as his judgment that circumcision is not to be required of the Gentiles, but only that they refrain from the pollution of idols, from fornication, and from the eating of things that had been strangled, and from blood. Verses 19 and 20, which conclusion was accepted as authoritative by the other apostles. Dr. Schofield says that dispensationally this is the most important passage in the New Testament. A quote on page 1169. However, he interprets it as applying to the future and says that these words describe the final gathering of Israel. In other words, he says that the prophecy quoted by James actually had no direct bearing on the question under debate by the council. We take our stand with James and maintain that the prophecy did apply definitely and directly to the problem under discussion, namely the status of the Gentiles in the church. Furthermore, we insist that here we have clear and direct refutation of the dispensationalist claim that the church and its attendant problems arising in the New Testament age were not foreseen nor predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Similarly, Paul justifies his action in turning from the Jews to the Gentiles by an appeal to Old Testament prophecy. In Acts 13, verses 46 and 47, we read, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first be spoken to you. Seeing that ye thrust it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee for a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the uttermost part of the earth. The fact of the matter is that the calling of the Gentiles into the church was one very important feature in Old Testament prophecy. It is mentioned repeatedly. When on trial before King Agrippa, Paul defended his work in the church and declared most emphatically 
that he had said nothing but what the prophets and Moses did say should come, how that the Christ must suffer, and how that he first, by the resurrection of the dead, should proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. In the midst of his defense, he turned to his judge and said, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? Acts 26, 27. The conclusion is inescapable that this is the way Paul understood the prophecies, that his interpretation was that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and the following work of the church in which he was so thoroughly absorbed was precisely the thing foretold by the Old Testament prophets. This was the new age to which the prophets had looked forward, and he justifies his work as being just that which had been predicted. Speaking to the Jews in Rome when they had appointed him a day, Paul expounded the matter testifying the kingdom of God and persuading them concerning Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. Acts 28.23 And at the close of the book of Acts we read of Paul's work in the city of Rome at the very end of his ministry and he abode two whole years in his own hired dwelling and received all that went in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness none forbidding him Acts 28 verses 30 and 31 thus throughout his ministry Paul preached the kingdom of God as manifested in the church and as the very thing that had been predicted by the Old Testament prophets Hence the kingdom is not merely a future hope but a present reality manifested in the church. Although like the grain of mustard seed and like the leaven in the meal, very small in its early stages. Had the kingdom been postponed, it would have been impossible for Paul to have preached it as a present reality. Likewise, it would have been impossible for him to have persuaded Orthodox Jews from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ and that the Christian church which he proclaimed was the fulfillment of those prophecies. The message of the apostolic church was not an expedient to which it was driven as a result of frustration by the Jews. Rather it was the gospel of God which he promised afore through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Romans 1 verses 1 and 2 In the light of the many references that have been cited, it is vain to insist that the church and its work is not in the vision of the Old Testament prophets. We cannot do other than brand the dispensational parenthesis view as false. The Jewish leaders, steeped in their man-made traditions, completely misunderstood the nature of the Messianic kingdom. Looking for and desiring only a kingdom of this earth, and unable to understand the higher spiritual kingdom that Jesus preached, they rejected the Messiah and caused him to be crucified. That was the sin for which they received such heavy punishment. It should be remembered, of course, that Christ lived under the Old Testament dispensation. He submitted to the ordinances and kept the feasts, the fasts, and the whole ceremonial law. The church as a distinct organization was not established until after the close of his public ministry. Consequently, he said very little about the church, but a great deal about the kingdom. Yet the New Testament doctrine regarding the church was latent in his teaching about the kingdom. 
as he proclaimed the spiritual kingdom, which was in many ways the antithesis of the earthly kingdom that the Jews were expecting. He was, in reality, describing the church, which would be founded on the finished work of his redemption. Our position is that the true or visible church is the whole body of the elect of all ages. The visible manifestation of this body in Old Testament times was the nation of Israel, and in New Testament times it is the Christian church in all its various denominations and branches which truly look to Christ as Savior. Old Testament Israel, as the congregation of God's people set aside from the Gentiles, was the forerunner of and developed into the Christian church in which the earthly distinction between Jew and Gentile disappears, never to be reinstituted. To reinstate the old distinction between Jew and Gentile after the New Testament era has dawned would be to reverse the forward march of the kingdom and would be as illogical and useless as to go back to candle or lamplight after the sun has risen. Naturally, there were some differences between the group which constituted the Lord's people in the Old Testament dispensation and that in the New. The Old was prophetic, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and his work of redemption. The New is historical, looking back to that accomplished work. The Old was largely national, being limited to the people of Israel and some few individuals who came into that company. The New is universal, designed for and open to all men of all nations and races. Furthermore, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church so that it now possesses a much more advanced revelation and a degree of spiritual power for appealing to and bringing in the unsaved, such as never was possessed by the Old Testament Israel. But these differences are not of great importance. They relate to methods of administration, not to fundamental principles. Each group was a covenant people. Salvation was on the same basis, namely, grace. Never has man been able to earn salvation or to make himself acceptable to God by doing good works. In both dispensations, salvation was by blood atonement vicariously suffered, of which the Old Testament saints had the promise and shadow as set forth in the temple rituals and sacrifices and look forward to its accomplishment. While the New Testament saints have the knowledge of its accomplishment as they look back to Calvary. The rituals and sacrifices were of course of no value at all in themselves. Their whole importance lay in the fact that they pointed forward to and prefigured a coming Redeemer and his work of atonement. From the time of Abraham on, God has had a continuing group of believers. Stephen speaks of the church in the wilderness, Acts 7.38, by which he certainly says that this same group existed in early Old Testament times. Dr. Hodge expresses it well when he says, There is no authorized definition of the church which does not include the people of God under the Mosaic law. And Masselink says more fully, the unity of the New Testament church with that of the old is clearly brought out in the biblical word that is used for church. The Greek word ecclesia designates the church as those called out of the world. The church is not part of the world but is separated from it. The same thought is contained in Genesis 3.15 when God speaks of the enmity that shall exist between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
It is also expressed in the call of Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul argues that the Gentile Christians belong to the same covenant that has been made with Abraham, the father of all believers. The organic unity between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church is clearly expressed. This unity must not be disregarded as is done by the Chileists. The Hebrews were called out of the nations of the earth to be a peculiar people of God. To them were committed the oracles of God. They received the blessings of adoption as children of God together with the covenant promises. They were called out of the world for a church purpose, namely, to be witnesses of God among the nations. A quote from Why Thousand Years, page 65. Dr. Alice says, The common doctrine of Protestants is that there is only one true Christian church. It is the church which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20 As a visible body it may have many forms and divisions, and there may be many tares among the wheat. As an invisible body it consists of the elect, of all those who truly believe in Christ as Savior and belong to Him. The church was founded at Pentecost. It was originally wholly Jewish and is proved by this very fact to be the continuation and successor of the Old Testament church. Gentiles were early received into it and soon came to constitute a majority in it and the teaching that the middle wall of partition between the two was completely broken down was especially but not exclusively committed to Paul, who was, in a preeminent sense, the apostle to the Gentiles. But no one emphasized more strongly than did Paul the vital oneness of the New Testament church within the Old Testament church. The Gentile branches were grafted into the good olive tree that they might enjoy its fatness, the fullness of the blessing promised to all the spiritual heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. A quote from Prophecy and the Church, page 166. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.